Okay, we're talking about the letter that the Rambam wrote to Jews in a community which is in crisis. The crisis had to do with a issue of Shmad. Shmad means that they wanted the Jewish people to convert to Islam. So now you have a major theological question. Is a Jew allowed to convert to Islam? That's one question. second question over here, which we discussed and have expanded upon, is an issue of a Messiah. All of a sudden somebody comes along, Messiah is coming, and I want you to follow this Mashiach. Is he the Mashiach or not the Mashiach? How do you know? It's one of the great fears of mine is that a Mashiach comes and we miss the call on the one hand. Which means, I have to ask the question. That's a great fear. That's a great fear. No, what happens when you miss him? That's one great fear. The right. other side of the is to follow somebody who's not. Who's not, exactly. <laughs> and the Jewish history has had numerous, numerous <clears throat> false messiahs going back hundreds and even thousands of years. The most important, famous false messiah happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus, right? You, you guys are not a... That's, right, thank you. Well, nobody knows exactly when he was born. He might have been, it was a falsified date, I think. So that's an important question. And that was a false messiah which created endless enmity for the Jewish people. So that was from one start. Of course, 300 years ago, you had Shabbatai Tzvi, who was a false messiah, who, of course, again, devastated the Jewish people. Devastated meaning that two-thirds of the Jews believed in him as Mashiach and sold their possessions. Imagine, selling everything you had, 10 cents on a dollar, because you end up in Israel to accept the Mashiach. And then he converts to Islam. So a false messiah is somebody that could devastate us on a social, financial, theological, religious level. The other hand, what if you miss him? And let's make it real. I agree. Take care, child. Have a good day. I agree, of course, that if, in fact, the situation is such that some wacko comes along on 42nd Street and says, I'm the messiah, and burns a candle and starts waving a flag, I'm not going to accept it. But what if a great rabbinic personality becomes known as the Mashiach? What do you do then? Who's the great one? Tell me that Moshe Farsi was Mashiach. What would I do then? Tell me that Rabbi was Rabbi Salvechik was Mashiach. What would I do then? That's a very frightening thought to me. Or I'll put your feet to, to the fire and tell you, what if we say that the Babacha Rebbe is the Mashiach? Everybody's saying that nowadays. What if he's the false Messiah? What if he's the real Messiah? What's involved over here? Right now you have exactly this fear is happening right now. Well, you have those who claim that he is the Mashiach and he's going to resurrect. What happened 2,000 years ago? Same exact story. 2,002 years ago, sorry. Well, the same exact thing happened. Where there was a claim and what happened? The, the claim was made. What the Mashiach is supposed to do is change the world. didn't happen. Therefore, we have a new doctrine which is called Second Coming. What's happening now? Second Coming. He's going to resurrect. Astounding how powerful this is. And of course, Rabbi David Berger has come out so strongly in his book, it's really well worth reading, and a few articles, I happen to have inside, uh, articles, is what do we do now? Now he's saying, clearly the Rebbe is not the Mashiach, and you're now dealing with a schismatic potential for the Jewish people, where they're going to create a different religion as Christianity, and he's petrified. Goes to the RCA, condemn this movement. The, interesting, they want, some of them are saying, yeah, let's not get so excited about it, Bob, is a good organization, they have outreach, they're wonderful, maybe we shouldn't condemn it. He's saying, what are you talking about? Look what's happening over here. He's a story. He's a brilliant mind. He sees trends. He understands how things happen in history. And he's worried that a hundred years from now, what will they say? He was the Mashiach. And he's still coming again. And therefore, do certain things because of that. Other rabbis are saying, ah, my Lubavitch is good. Let's not get so... And the average <coughs> Lubavitch will, in fact, does in fact believe that he was the Mashiach. And is the Mashiach. Look what he's done. The great stuff. So we are now in the throes of trying to determine how to respond to this particular situation. 
what do we do now is my question. Right? I am fully in the camp of Rabbi Berger. I would condemn it. He was not the Mashiach because he died. And Mashiach has to do something before he dies. Whatever else we're going to say. So the Rambam really is dealing with a current issue for us. And we have to really understand and follow the Rambam's guidelines as to what the Mashiach is really all about. So here you have this twofold so issue. We're going to um, speak about that issue as we go along. We're going to speak about that issue. We're going to um, look at, when we get to that section over here, because we do want to cross-reference. Because as I mentioned a few times, Thank you. As I mentioned a few times, it's not enough to simply just study the letter of the Rambam per se. One as well wants to study the Rambam's theoretical sources on this. The Mishneh Torah. Because a public letter, thank you, could have many different dimensions to it as we discussed. So now we want to compare what the Rambam says here in this letter to what the Rambam says in his official public writings. So we're going to do both of these. With regard to the issue of Shemad, which means conversion or death, on the one hand, as well as, this is over here, where they correspond, fine. Where they don't correspond, we have to raise the question. So, there's two major issues over here. One is, what does one do when one is approached with the alternative of either dying or converting to Islam? We want to see it in Mishneh Torah, and we want to see it over here. And the same for Mashiach when we get to it. That's the second part of this essay. Okay? Now, we had again, just to briefly summarize, read already his opening, greatness of the Jews of Timan, how extraordinary they are, how wonderful these Jews are, tremendous knowledge and wisdom have always been part and parcel of Timan. It's an exaggerated praise. You have to raise the question, why would one write in a letter an exaggerated praise? That's point number one. Number two is then, he says that there are those who praised me. And therefore, you're writing to me this letter, asking me these questions. What do we do when the king says, convert to Islam or die? You're writing to the greatest rabbi of that generation. And they praise him. He says, ah, don't praise me so much. I'm a small little person. I'm the smallest rabbis of the of Sabbath. So, of course, Charles said last week, that's his modesty. It's not only, I think, modesty, but he may be saying over here that I am the small rabbi and I know the answer. So, therefore, it's an obvious answer. Two and two is four, but any standards. And you don't have to be a Jesus, two and two is four. So the Rambam wants to perhaps say that what I'm saying to you is so obvious that even myself, who's a small rabbi, knows the answer to this question. As opposed to, as opposed to saying complex question. I have to think about this question. What happens when I, if I say this question is complex? I have to think about it. What might be your conclusion? Even if I conclude a certain way, what might you say to me? Well, it's so complex, there's so many aspects and dimensions, maybe you're wrong in one detail or other. As opposed to saying, this is the simplest question in the whole world. There's no doubt about my answer. Ham and eggs is not kosher. So what does he say about the other rabbi? He's going, he's going to have to deal with the other rabbi. So he's saying he's so small. And it's so obvious to me. Then that means he's off base. He doesn't have a clue, because this is the simplest question that even a child can answer. So now here's an interesting question. So you go to a 10th grader or a 5th grader and say, let's say you know, something like, um, and you give him a, a long addition problem. Three numbers, four numbers, he gets it. 
give it to a PhD in mathematics and doesn't have, and he's thinking, he's thinking, he's thinking, he's thinking. And then you look at the, simple, this thing is 18 plus 18 plus 18, 54, there's no problem over here, correct? Now the PhD from Princeton says, one second, I'm thinking, I don't understand, what, da, da, da. what do you walk away with? You look at this thing, it's 18, 18, 18. Exactly, <laughs> right, exactly. Something's off in the Princeton school. Because what is he thinking about over here? I don't get what he's thinking about over here. So, if we follow this train of thought, the Rambam may come out on top and saying, this was a simple issue. What are you guys so upset about? It's Pashut. And yet, think about how emotionally uptight these people are over here. It's a life and death issue. So does Rambam want to simplify or complicate the life and death issue? That's the interesting question. Does he want to say, it's very straightforward, you do X. X is you live life, which we don't get to yet, but that's what he's going to say. You convert to Islam and live life. As opposed to what everybody else is saying, this is simple and complex. If you make it to a complex halakhic problem, then you allow factors to enter into the, deci- to the decision, which he doesn't want to allow. This is a two and two is four problem. Simple. Well, this is a dilemma or something like that, or if there's Here, there's a polemical reason why I want to simplify. He knows the truth, and it's a complex truth. We're going to study and see <clears throat> that it's actually a very complex truth. But he loses polemically by the more complex that it is. Why? Because again, what, the more factors that you allow to enter into the discussion, the more somebody can challenge you on those factors. Right? And it's an right, obvious that's, point. That's so, I yeah. Right. But for polemical reasons. Because he wants to convince you to do what I'm saying. So, therefore, it's a simple issue. A plus B equals C. Simple. Wait, wait, wait. He knows the whole truth. They don't see the whole truth. He's not... In which work? In his Mishnah Torah, he may want you to use the whole truth, and therefore he's very complex over here. But in this work, which is a polemical work, against, I shouldn't tell you this, the rabbi who is saying, die for your religion, as opposed to coming to Islam, he has an end. He has a goal. His goal is to keep his community alive against the wrong halakhic advice of the other rabbi who is saying, die for your religion. So therefore, what's going to serve as polemical ends? Sorry? I don't want to tell you. Well, we have to, this, uh, they, are, they are, have great respect. He's a great rabbi. Good. So what, but what's more important now? Do I save their lives? They're right now at the cusp of death. But they know he's the Rambam. And they said, we're sending the question to you because you are the Rambam. It depends upon. It depends. No, it depends upon again how he's going to play his hand. So I'm just speculating now, just trying to figure out. Literarily, he makes a statement. Who am I? I'm the smallest of the great rabbis of Sephardat. Right now, we again we want to play this out. And I don't want to do this in advance because it's. Uh, I, I don't. I, I want to read it as he wrote it, and reveal so we'll get the full impact of what he's saying. But I certainly think it's the right question to ask. Why would the Rambam say? In 1172, he's about 40 years old at this point. 
He's born 1135, so he's about 38 years old. He already wrote his work on logic. He wrote his work on on Ibud, on the intercalation uh, of the year, which is one of the most complex issues of halakha, the moon, the moon, the doubling of the month, etc. He's already written his Pirusha Mishnah. His name is known throughout the world because he wrote his Pirusha Mishnah, which nobody ever did before. At the age of 23, he finished it. So he's really the Rambam at this point. At 38, 37 years old, he's the Rambam. So that's why he sent him the letter. So now, why would he say, I'm a nobody? And you could compare what he says in other works, in his introductions. I don't recall, and I've read all of his other works, uh, certainly, and Mishneh Torah's introductions to other works. He never says, I'm the smallest nobody. The opposite. The opposite. I'm the, don't touch I'm the Rambam. I know who I am. And what's amazing about his genius is that he had a great perception of his place in history at the time he was writing. He knew that what he's going to be doing now is going to be read 800 years from now. He knew his place in history at the time of his writing. Very few can actually know that. I mean, who's A, has the arrogance, and B, who knows what's going to happen? He's that confident. I have the truth. Who's going to have an interest now? You're going to use my book. And we still are. He was right. He knew his place in history. That confidence, an interesting mind, that clear. And again, <clears throat> the more that one studies the Rambam, the more one is just appreciative of his genius, of thinking out of the box, of um, going through even what he went through and produces extraordinary works. You know, pre-computer, it's impossible to memorize shots by heart and pick out all the halachot and conceptualize and classified and organize is an extraordinary mind. You know, at a young age, how do he do this? It's astounding. His sensitivity, it's, 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 not, it's not astounding because if we believe that the Mozarts wrote their symphonies at the age of five, which I don't believe yet. Can't be. No, no, he didn't write to me at five. They say it, but I don't believe it. But he wrote it at 15. Of course, that's what happened. You know, and it's amazing. I mean, and, and think about Beethoven who was deaf, you know, who wrote what he wrote. And what does it really mean? I mean, and the notes, and the complexity of a symphony. It's, anybody who knows anything about music knows how complex a symphony is. You're talking about every instrument sounding a note and ha- holding that in your mind. They had, in their mind, they had, com- in mind, they had complete symphonies. And they just ended up putting on paper a year or two later. It's astounding. But the human mind is really astounding. And, you know, we, of course, according to most uh, psychologists, use about 5 to 8% of our brains. And, so the, and our brain has a tremendous capacity for... Knowing, for knowing, for analyzing. We, we don't. We watch video games and we go to movies and you know, do stuff like that. We don't use our mind. And when you see it in action, with Rabbi Salvegic, for example, you did see genius in action. You really saw an analytical powers, creative powers, different aspects of the mind. The mind is a very complex phenomenon in that it's not simply just analytical or memorizable, that it memorizes things. It's much more complex than that. So when you see that in action, you see, wow, you say, it's extraordinary. The Rambam is of that order and beyond. So, and he was aware of that. So to write, Ani I have to raise the question at least. Forget about all my speculations as to why he wrote this. Maybe he wasn't trying to convince him of anything. There was no polemical intent in that statement. Perhaps. But I do want to raise the question that that's something that we have to keep an eye on. Maybe we'll come back at the end of the day to what Charles said, he's only modest. But he doesn't write this anyplace else. His modesty. Here he's writing about, I'm a, I'm a nobody. Why is there a nobody over here? Why not go the other route? I'm the Rambam, but I say, just follow it, period. <clears throat> is there a subtlety over here that we're missing? 
So that's what you read the Rambam. You have to think about the selfish. Okay, let's go on. So he says, I have not even reached the wisdom of my forefathers. Same point. And we had very difficult times. We were through persecutions. We went through oppressions. We couldn't find any relaxation. But, Ratsti Ahara Kotsunim. I ran after the those who cut down the wheat. I gathered my shibulim. And again, I just have to smile when you read this. It's such a great, subtle remark revolving around Megillah Rut. He's quoting Megillah Rut. And again, who's going to pick up that note? I mean, I do because I know Rut by heart. So you know it's easy. Wow, it's great. Why is this? Because Rut's about Geulah. It's about redemption. It's about a false messiah. Rut ends with the birth of King David, who's the Melech Mashiach in some sense. Or going to produce the Mashiach in some sense, correct? So that's what's about Rut over here. On the other hand, I'm going to raise that question again. Why does he use in the page before I don't know the answer to that question. The context of when we received your letter, it was so pleasant to all the ears. It was it was temptation to the eyes. Now the average person, I assume, in our community would not see anything wrong with that statement. Those four words. Yet what do I what did I say about that? That comes from Ganaiden. And it's a very negative context. So why in heaven's names is he using that phrase? Is it a random phrase? He writes biblically and Talmudically, and therefore he put this, he, he said this phrase, or oh, something else over here. Or even something else. What is Gan Eden about? Forbidden knowledge. It's people that engage unthinkingly in issues. Is that, he gets their letter, says this thing is good for the eyes, but it's bad for the soul. Because what was true of the Eitzhah It was bad for the soul. That's why they shouldn't have touched it. Forbidden knowledge. Is that why he's doing it over here? There's obviously a subtle nuance to that phrase why he's, in, why he's using it over here. To a good rabbinic biblical Jew, it means beware, don't touch. A Nahash is trying to convince you to eat of the forbidden fruit. Who's the Nahash over here? Uh, don't speculate. I didn't say anything about a rabbi. There's no other rabbi. We didn't get to that yet. So we have to raise that question. Biblical innuendos, rabbinic statements, I think are clear the Ram wants to carry a message with. But we'll get to that as we go along. So he mentions Megidarut, very nice. I gathered all this stuff, this stuff together, very good. I will tell you the answer to your questions, etc. And then he talks about the, the Rabbi Kwanim, very interesting, very good. And all the rest of the issues of your letter, I'm going to respond to in Arabic. Now, Leman Yerutz Korebo is what I ended with last week. Leman Yerutz HaKorebo. Now, where is that from? We had to see the context. And this is extraordinary. I mean, I'm so pleased that I know this. What's so funny about that? It's true. I mean, it's an extraordinary statement. And what I really find even more extraordinary is when I read, you know, all the... Um, People that come once a month, we don't give extra copies to. So you gotta come every, come every week. Commit to this to this endeavor. <coughs> now, what's interesting over here? I look at my Korea today. Bought right. Um, and what disturbs me a little bit is that you have this phrase, and um, 
I look at the footnote. I, I have a few editions of this letter. I didn't look at all the editions. But after this edition, which is a very well-regarded edition, Ramam Rabinowitz, very, very nice, good. And footnote Aleph on this over here, right, on page Kofiud. And he doesn't know the root reference that I made before. Does not see that as Geula whatsoever. He missed that point. And just makes it, I studied all kinds of other knowledges and all that kind of stuff. Good. And he has all this, this poem over here. All this about this poem that he's talking about over here. Right? And he missed the reference. He doesn't see this at all, the footnote over here, as a reference to root about Geulah. Now, more or equally significant, right? He doesn't know where his pasuk comes from. Now, why is that the case? It's not surprising. Because, is it surprising? Well, it's not surprising to the extent that you're reading a text of, let's say, 50 pages or 40 pages. How do you know which phrase is biblical if you know nothing about Bible? You wouldn't, correct? Pashut. You know, by heart. To do what I'm doing now, you have to have to know this reference by heart. You have to know, you recognize it. So root, you should know, because root is, and I, maybe I missed, I read it very quickly, maybe I missed the point of it, but I don't see him knowing this about root. Right? So if he doesn't know about root, maybe um, he must know it, because he reads it on Shavuot. So it, I'm the editor who put together the footnotes over here. So this issue about root and, and Geulah and everything else like that, Right, that, that could be. Okay, good. But the next one is much more obscure, where it's likely he doesn't have any clue. It's likely he doesn't have any clue over here, because it's a very obscure phrase. Amen, can you that one? I don't know if a computer can do that. Can a computer read this text and find out which is biblical? No, 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 but, but, but you're not going to, no, that I know, but you're not going to type in a whole essay. I'm not sure how limited it is, but okay. Right. Monarch knows. There's a program that can actually look through all of, of what's out there? I know, but it's not. I don't think it's that black and white, but simple. I mean, how could you look at all the literature? Yeah, he's right. Every encyclopedia. So she recognizes <laughs> And then she traces it. Feeling better? Okay. Interesting question. I don't know, but if unless you know it by heart, you're not going to pick it up. Now he didn't. This is no reference of certainly on the Masechus Boy doesn't know. So what is he talking about? And again, and Ashkenazi would not know, but Asfaradi, who was trained to know biblical references and to memorize it, because that's the way Sfaradim are raised, would know this. And it's an extraordinary context. So where is it from? You know Tanakh. You should know where this is from. No. 
Wrong. Oh, that's this is neon lights to me. But he didn't know it. He didn't tell me this. How come he didn't know this? I'm, I love knowing more than the book I'm using. I'm telling you, I do a better job. I do this, uh, this a book by Musa Rab Kuk um, on Shemuel, on the book of Shemuel. And we actually used it as a teaching. And he missed all the... What I found, he missed. Yeah, I am. I really am. No, I really am. It's very true. I really am. And I say, this, and I, I'm better than the guy who put together this whole book. My commentary, which is shot commentary, is much better. He missed this reference. Subtleties, nuances. He doesn't read literarily right. But I'm trained on a graduate level to read text properly. He's not. He's a rabbi or whatever, whatever he was, whatever he did. Whatever you, I, wonderful. But it's embarrassing to me that he, that I got what he didn't get. Because I'm used to also, like, what do I know? I read a book, the book knows more than me. When I get to the point where I don't want a book, I'm, a, I'm upset. Because what am I going to read books for any longer? There's no point reading books anymore, if you know what. you start writing. Start writing, right. And I'm not prepared to do that either. So it's, in my field, I could do it, but yeah, this, this is Pashut to me. So we look at, and, it, and I, and I raise, this is a question over here. Why are you assuming that I was worried about you being here? No worry. I'd like to ask you to come to the class and have a seat over here. <laughs> now, now, the reason I ask Emma this question, she's a teacher of Tanakh. Now, if she's a, a 20 year teacher, she doesn't know it, then okay, then he doesn't know it either. I understand that. But it's really glaring to me and extraordinary. Sorry? He, you know, Tanakh. You just study Tanakh. He's, not a, he's, certainly, he's certainly not a philosopher. No. Well, this is 30 years old. No. So, no. So, but again, he doesn't know it, and I just—it's—it's it's really, I—I—I'm I, 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 smiling. I'm happy that I got he didn't get it, but he should have gotten it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those. Page 705, Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a prophet. You allow me this slight excursion. He prophesied in the year 612 before the Common Era. He's part of the three Nevi'im. If you look at, um, look for a second, 612. All right. Tell you in a minute. Get home. No. Well, you'll see. If you look at the Nevi'im, list of Nevi'im, at the beginning of Tere Asar, this is relevant to us, which is um, right after Yehezkel. It should be on page. Here we have a Tanakhia, the same one. Here. Yehezkel. Look at yeah, the list on page 675. You see the last three Nevi'im. Haggai 675. Quick, 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 quick. It's the list of Nevi'im. Uh, you see the list, right? Good. The last three, Haggai, Zechamah, are known as post-exilic. Post, they prophesied after the Horban, around 520 before the Common Era. After the destruction of the Temple in 586, they prophesied in 520. That's one group. The three prior to them, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, three prophets, now, Sifania came first, around 615, 618 before the Common Era. He predicted the fall of Assyria, this great, powerful, extraordinary empire that reigned for 4,500 years, the first huge empire the world had known, just conquered rapaciously the ancient Middle East. He predicted, he predicted their downfall. Why? Because they're evil. Torah's teaching is, if you're evil, you'll be destroyed. They're evil, they have to be destroyed. Good, he predicted in 618. Now, in 612, Nahum recorded 
the destruction of Nineveh, which is the capital city of Mesopotamia or Ashur. Right? Found so far? We all know where Ashur is on the map? Assyria, right. Right. Yeah. Here's your map of. I'm oh, sorry. Could you fix this for me one of these days? Syria and Iran. Right. A little bit north of that. Here, here's your map. Israel. Right? Mediterranean Sea. Europe up here. Egypt down here. Here is Syria up here. Mesopotamia was this huge empire that incorporated this whole northeast area, including, of course, Iraq or Bavel. And Syria as well, and Iran at that period of time, which is which was Persia, Paras. So, Persian Empire and Western. This is way before that. This is 600 years before that. Before who? So, yeah, Cyrus. Before that, yes. This is about five, six hundred years before that. Powerful empire, rent this whole entire area. Rapacious, scorch earth policy, which is why Simonia says that the trees of the field shall cry out in joy when they are defeated, because they used to burn down the trees and devastate the land had the principle of divide and conquer. They conquered the ten northern tribes of Judea, and they lost to us because they sprinkled them throughout their entire empire. Why they do that? It was one of the great innovative um, military strategy. because once, if I'm spread out, then I don't know you, you don't know me. We don't speak the same language. We can't rebel. We can't conspire against the mother nation because we don't speak the same language. I don't trust you. Maybe you're a spy for them. Till we learn the language, till we trust other, it takes another 10, 15 years. So that's what they had, this principle of divide and conquer. Sorry? Absorbed, absorbed, sprinkled. It was interesting. Right, correct. So the ten northern tribes were lost to the Jewish people because of this policy. No, they expected them to assimilate into the pagan religion, which is what happened, which is what they did. Now, this is 722, they, they destroyed 10, 12 to the Jewish people, 722, right? So 615, Sabanya says, you'll be destroyed because you're evil, which everybody agrees. The last king of, Ash- of, the, of the, one of the last kings is called, named Ashuribanipal, who said, I have painted the mountains red with the blood of my enemies, and he didn't exaggerate. Till the Nazis, we had no clue as to how evil an empire could be. With the entire empire, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> Well, the entire empire is geared towards massive destruction. The ancient pagans were generally very tolerant. You have yours, I have mine, just pay me off, and it's fine. Egypt often just <clears throat> spoiled the Jewish people, took their treasures, and went home. No problem. Just give me the money, and that's fine. I don't need you for anything else than that. Then a few slaves, and I'm happy. So now, Nahum in 612 saw the destruction of the city of Nineveh, <clears throat> which is what Yonah spoke about, someplace up here, right? Good. Habakkuk complained in 612 bitterly about this destruction. Bitterly, screaming and yelling at Hashem for it. Who took over Assyria, by the way? Bavel, right? Iraq. To the south of Mesopotamia was Iraq, right? Bavel. And then Persia came to go over for Bavel around 561, 550 before the coming year. So now we're in 612. What's Habakkuk's problem? Exactly. So we look at Habakkuk in the first chapter of his thing, and he says, and he screams. I mean, it's, it's, it's a terrible statement. The burden that Habakkuk, and it's on page 704, 
How long, God, shall I cry out and you won't listen? I will scream out Hamas, which is the, that which brought Mabul to the world. I'm screaming Hamas and you're not helping? Why do you make me see evil and strife and contentious and rapaciousness? Hamas, I see this all day long. And what's going to happen eventually? Verse 4. Therefore, Torah will always be, be weak, undermined, and there will never be just in the world because the evil man is the one that is able to smite the righteous man and always just as perverted. And he goes on and on and on. Now, chapter 2, he says, I will stand by my watch, God. I will stand on the high place. I'm waiting to see what he, who's the he? Hashem, capital H. What he will answer on my rebuke. Tochachti means rebuke. What I rebuked God about. What will he answer? Ma ashiv atochachti. Now, of course, those of you reading with me in verse 1, know there's a grammatical error in this verse. What's the grammatical error in this verse? It says, ma ashiv atochachti. What's the grammatical error? What should it say? Charlie, what are you up to? Page 707, 705. 706, 706. 706, they don't, yeah, 706, right. Pasuk bet. Perek bet pasuk aleph. I will stand on my watch. Right? And I will be on this high place. I will wait to see what he will answer me, what I will answer on my rebuke. So it should say what, what he will answer. These are one of the known Tikkunesofrim where the rabbis corrected the text because it was embarrassing to leave it as it is. There are 15 places. It's in the beginning of the Tanhuma. We looked at it once before a few years ago. There are 15 places, if I remember correctly, or 18 places, 15 I think it is, places in Tanakh. Two in the Torah and another 13 in, in Nevi'im and Kituvim where the rabbis corrected the text in quotes. It should have, he wrote originally my yashiv what he will answer my rebuke he corrected it to what I will answer my rebuke my ashiv ashiv is the first person what I will answer my rebuke right another I mean I can show you all 15 I could show you the Torah where it, where it says one of them for example you're not interested in that you don't pursue that right now do you no okay good okay good so my ashiv now it's a rebuke he's very angry Right? We're following so far? Habakkuk 6.12. He's very angry at Bavel <clears throat> taking over for Assyria because Bavel is worse than Syria. That's his issue over here. Right, Evil. Nowadays. Exactly. How so? Well, they're worried about who's going to come after who's Okay, but I'll give you a better example than nowadays. If our principle of Torah is that evil has to be devastated and destroyed, which is the principle of Torah, if one were a rabbi in 1942, what one would have said? Hitler will be destroyed because he's evil. The thousand-year Reich will not last. So the rabbi would have to preach that in 39, in 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, and finally in 45. What's going to happen? <coughs> the rabbi will walk out of a synagogue smiling <coughs> in 1945, vindicated that Hitler is destroyed, and oh, say, I told you. And then... And then, two, three years later, you'll see the devastating, overwhelming power of Stalin, responsible for the death of 60 million, as opposed to it was 40 million death, and it's worse. The point is, there's always another one coming around. That's his point. That's why evil is continuously we ruling. We vigilant, because we, sl we took out Hitler, and we stopped. 
Okay, right. So, it was our ally. We needed him. Whatever the case may be, whatever political decision you made, well, it's a good point. But here we're saying that it, that the, the he who you brought into power now, Hashem, is worse than what we had. Bavel is worse than Assyria, and Stalin's worse than Hitler. So what good is you? Therefore, Torah will never be raised up to a high level. Where? What is it going to happen? What does he really want over here? What is it going to happen that justice rules? Goodness is rewarded. Mashiach. Good. So he says, I will stand by my watch. I will see where God answers my rebuke. Hashem answered him. Hashem. Ketov Hazon. Write down the vision. Uba'er. Explain it. On tablets. What does that mean? So that he who runs can read it. What does that mean? That simple. If I'm running, you're driving on the highway. You're going 60 miles an hour. Can you read a small, tiny sign? No. Can you read a big billboard? Yes. Why? Because it's big. He who runs could read that which is large. He doesn't write this large. What you write large in this specific context? Hashem answers and says, Ki od hazon There'll be still a vision for the time period. The end name. What's the end referred to? Mashiach will come and it will not belie it. It will not be an untruth. It will happen. If he hesitates, wait for him. He shall surely come. He won't delay. What is Hashem saying? That you, Habakkuk, you're only seeing a part of the picture. You're only seeing now Ashur Bavel. There's a whole bigger picture over here until Mashiach comes. She's going to come. He will certainly come. Absolutely will come. And I want you to write this large so that somebody who is running can still read this large billboard that it's going to happen. If he delays, Hakelo, and it's a very powerful phrase, Hakelo, wait for the Mashiach to come. He will say, he will not, not come. Lo yechazev. He will not, not come. He will certainly and surely come. We will not delay in coming. So you're only seeing Ashur Bavil, which is a small piece of the pie. Mashiach to come is going to be a long story over here. We now know the story so far 2,500 years later. It's not yet come. So that's a little bit upsetting to me. How much is long? I mean, how long am I going to still read this and still trust that it's going to happen? Inshallah. So I'm waiting. I'm still waiting. But he's supposed to come. So now... Wait, you think he's like 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 you? No, he's like your father. He's not going to retire. No, 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 no! Don't say that. He's coming tomorrow. He's coming tomorrow. He's coming tomorrow. Pack your bags. Oh, maybe one today. Pack today. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. He's late. He's after all the other early Nevi'im. So now, my point over here obviously is the Rambam. Yeah? 612. It's 140 years after Amos and after Ishayahu, 78. Ishayahu dies in 690, Ishayahu. So it's 80 years after Ishayahu. So, so the, the issue is out there. I don't know what. Because I know it. Hey, you have to know this. So the Rambam writes, Is it not obvious to everybody right now that this is obviously a reference to Habakkuk, Messianic context? We are going to speak with the Mashiach coming over here. I say this emphasis because this is the subtlety of the writer. 
He doesn't make mistakes. His artfulness over here is such that he will introduce early on with this subtle biblical reference, but yet not subtle to me at all, he's saying, I'm going to answer your, you in a way so that one who runs will be able to understand and read it. I'm going to write in large, clear letters about Mashiach. Absolutely. Rabbinic biblical Jews knew these by heart. Uh, if I knew it, they certainly knew it. What's interesting over here is that, um, now that's true, it's interesting, the Rambam often would do this, but not only expected to know, like his, his opening line to one of as well. There he writes on Pasukim Lechacha that Abraham went out, Vaikra Beshem Hashem. He called out the name of God, he called out, right? The rabbinic commentary on that Pasuk of Lechacha. It says, don't read it Vayikra ela Vayakri. So what's between Vayikra and Vayakri? Hif'il. Hif'il. Causative. To cause you to know God. Vayikra, the pasuk, Pshara Pasuk means he called out the name of God. Vayikra, he called out the name of God. Vayakri means he caused you to call out the name of God. Right? You see the difference. It's called Hif'il in Hebrew. So why is that important? What's the Ramam doing in Morin Nebuchim? In Morin Nebuchim, he's not only going to state a truth, he's going to bring you to recognize and say the same truth. Sorry? Realization. To realization, Christ. And it cause you to realize the truth as well. Okay. See, I could tell you the truth, that means you're going to realize it. Right, good. But by my saying it to you, I'm going to teach it, teach it so that you will accept it and understand it and realize it. So the Rambam there would expect the people who read his work to know rabbinically what the rabbi said about that pasuk. So the Rambam expected the reader to know this. Certainly they knew this. Yeah, absolutely. They knew Tanakh by heart. So this is obvious. So to me it's clear, and I find it just so interesting that of course, my footnote is not to mention this over here. And again, it's clearly a messianic statement. It's messianic. He's saying, I'm going to answer your your question so clearly that the person who runs Korebo will be able to read and understand it. So uh, this is not me reading into the text. This is here. Sorry? On Aleph, I read to you. This is, it's, it's a whole story about um, nothing to do with this issue at all. He just passed over it completely. doesn't tell me where the source of it. But again, if you're not, who knows Habakkuk? Who studies Habakkuk? One of my great stories about this Navi, these Nevi'im, is that um, I was going to class the ladies about 15 years ago, and we were surveying all Nevi'im. So I gave like two classes per Navi. The ideas, the philosophies, the historical, all that stuff, right? Did all this. Nancy Sutton was here, so she came to the class, and we did Yoel. I said, okay, did Yoel. She goes home, said, what do you do? You went to the class. What, what do you do? Because did Yoel. What are Nevi'im Maharonim? She says, there's no such Navi. She says, no, no, we did, we did it. She saw it, we did it. Here's a boy who went to eight years of Magen David.
hit. We hit, we hit him. Right? So here, Habakkuk is not well known by anybody. <coughs> so the fact that Ashkenazi would not know it, unless he's a Tanakh teacher, I'm not surprised. But it's such a Pashut point. I mean, we all agree that it's there, right? At this point, we all agree that this is a clear reference, Messianic context, and he's saying, I'm going to tell you this answer clearly, and it's a beautiful allusion to it. But the point for us is that the Ram does not very simply drop these allusions. He expects you to pick them up. So again, I'll raise the question, which I wasn't able to figure out, why does he say that this letter that I'm ans- that you sent to me is Ta'avahul Anayim? Now that Charlie knew is from God Aydin. What knowledge, forbidden knowledge, cunning, snake. Why is he saying all this? So I'm a, it's not an innocent phrase. One does not say these kinds of things in this particular context. Okay, good. Now let's look ahead. After finishing all this, saying that I'm going to answer this question. Bechol anashim that the men, the children, and anashim all understand it. Kshuvat and you know echad. The answer to question is one. <clears throat> it's not a complex issue. Kshuvat and you know the answer to this question is one, right? Reuyal amor alia kochilotechem yahad, and it's appropriate that all of your kahal, which has always been known for understand together this answer. We spoke above about how great Timan is, how smart they are, to what they know, and there's no fragmentation. Why is he emphasizing there's no fragmentation? They're all one in this issue. Because obviously somebody is now going to fragment the community. His answer is not going to correspond to their rabbinic leadership's answer. But you as a unified community will see the simplicity of my answer, and you should all act on it unifiedly. You're all one. If you've always been one, you're going to continue to be one. And my answer is very simple. I'm going to write it very large. And everybody... Men, infants, and women will all understand this answer. Simple. What's the answer? Let's see. <clears throat> the first question, of course, you're going to deal with is the issue of Shmad. When do you die for your religion? That's the question that was raised. Omnam, based on the Arabic, which means indeed. Not however, as the Hebrew indicates, but rather it's the Arabic Omnam, Amana, which means indeed. Mashsakharta, you mentioned. Min Haomed. There was a man, a ruler, who stood over you in the Esteman, Asher Gazar Shemad. He decreed Shemad, which means martyrdom. He wants you to martyr yourself on the Jewish people. And he forced all those places. That he rules over. To leave their religion. Right? As the Canaanite, now the of course question over here would be, to whom is he referring? Canaanites has been a dead people for the last thousand years before the, after the Ramah, two thousand years. Was the Canaanite right in the eastern lands? So here is an interesting issue. The footnote is very enlightening over here, and of course he's speaking over here about the Almohades. We know that in the eastern part of the world, namely Spain, the Almohades in 1148, as we mentioned, swept through, especially Cordoba forcing their fanatical Shiite religion on those people. Muslims, correct. Yeah, Muslims, Moors, yes. Right? And they had forced people to convert to Islam or die, or die, which is surprising. That was jihad. That was jihad. And the Ramam had to run away. His love for the Ramam was 13 years old. And ran to different places. And he ended up in Fez, Morocco at one point, where people say, I'll emphasize the point, not everybody agrees, 
Yes, Shomrim, some people say, and the Ram and his family convert to Islam outwardly, but maintain the Jewishness inwardly, some say. Ended up going to Syria, to Eretz Israel, and finally, in about 1168-1169, ended up in Egypt, in Cairo, Egypt, Fustat, name of Egypt. So the Ramah was running from 1148 till about 1169, almost 20 years, on the run, afraid of the Al-Muhadis, who began in the eastern part of the world and then swept their way. Now they're at Teman, and they're going to force them to convert to their religion, right? Now, the question is, where does he get the word Kena'anai from? Right? So here's an interesting footnote over here. And he called them Kena'anai, because the Arabic original wrote Al-Shami. What does Shami mean? Damascus. Damascus. Right. right. So the original Arabic wrote Al-Shami, which means Damascus. The Al-Sham in Arabic is the land of Canaan. Interesting that a thousand years ago, the word Al-Shami, which we understand now to refer not to Hala, but to another city, was known as Ez Canaan. So we'd have to look up the root of the word Sham, Shawamam in Arabic, to think why it refers to Damascus and why it referred then to Canaan. This is not any hard thing to do. Just get an Arabic dictionary. I didn't do it. But one could do it very simple, do it for next week. So look up the word al-sham, shawamam in Arabic, and see what the root is. It means a geographical location, destination. So in Arabic, al-sham, for us, it means Damascus. For them, it is Kana'an. Now the Rambam, who was right to Taman, called all of those Arzot Arab, all those Arabic nations, except for Taman, he called them al-sham. That was his name for any Arab country. Now, it might be the case that um, Shah might mean, let's say, eastward or something like that, and the Arabs had spread in an easterly fashion. We'll look up the original root and see <coughs> why that is so. Al Shem is Kanana Simchale and Bahen. So they were close. And the footnote says that he who translated this from Arabic to Hebrew did not understand. The Ram was really referring to Arabic countries, and therefore, he, and he, he saw Al Sham and Kanaan. He really means Kanaani. Really means Al Sham, <coughs> Arabic, and he didn't understand it, so he wrote Kanaanite, which doesn't make sense in the original in our Hebrew because Kanaan is long gone. So there's a whole story over here, not important for us specifically, but interesting. Now, so this fanatical Muslim sect swept the East as now coming back to the West as forcing people to, to leave their religion. Shemu'azu, this here, this, what we heard, Hesida Hadar Paneno, has removed the glory of our face. Now that's very strange as a phrase. What does it mean to, re, to remove the glory of your face? Now our footnote 5 says, this is a very strange Hebrew phrase, and it seems to be a pasuk, no, it's supposed to be that a person who knows Arabic well will understand what this really means. When you remove the glory of your face, what are you really doing? Your outward uh, appearance. Or, or esteem, or I would say life. That when you remove the glory of the face, perhaps this is a nuance that Arab ha- Arabic language has that 
life is the glory of your face. You remove the the glory of the face. You're removing the life. So he says, this removed, this drained us of our blood. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. With the essence of our life. By hearing this, this is a terrible issue. Right? <clears throat> Good. So that's what it might mean. That there's no joy any longer. There's no happiness any longer. There's nothing. There's nothing to be happy about. And we trembled. And we shook. Now again, that's a biblical phrase which he doesn't pick up. I don't remember where it's from. I think Devarim. But he doesn't know it. And I didn't look it up either where it's from exactly. But it's a biblical phrase. Not that important for us. So it made us all tremble. And in truth, it's right for us to say, It's a terrible, terrible thing that we heard, that whoever who has heard it, his ears shall ring. Now that, of course, he did pick up that phrase from, well, it's from a few different places actually. He sees it, but as a symbol, rings in ears, and you have it in Habakkuk, he says. So he found it in Habakkuk. That's weird. That's weird. Sorry? You're right, right. So there it's very clear. They call But it's really in other places as well. Exactly, which is interesting. Right. So he looked at it. However, it's interesting why I put that there. Correct. Good. Our hearts are weakened. Our minds are confused to these great tzarot. These great crises that has overtaken your country. It has continued for us martyrdom, this issue of persecution <coughs> from one end of the earth, east all the way west. And we're in the middle. The Amulhadis are flying all over the place and we Jews are in the middle. We're surrounded by all of this. Right? Now, here's interesting. On this very difficult period, the Navi had seen in a vision. Now, again, think about why is he quoting this over here. He's quoting Hanavi, the Navi. And that should be a red flag to you. Who is the Navi in the Jewish tradition? Moshe. But he was not quoting Moshe. Why does he call him Hanavi? I find that interesting. He started to pray for us when the Navi had foreseen this. He started to pray for us, as it says, now comes the Navi. Where's it from? I'm most paid example to care. Right? So, it's a great context. Look up Amos Pedigzain, which is on page. Mm-hmm. Amos Perek Zayin, 692. What's the context over here? We're leaving? I'm finishing in one minute. Two minutes. No, not more than two minutes. I, 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 just, I, I, just, two minutes. I just feel people leaving. It's my fault. I want to end on time. I can get on the website. What happens? God has showed the Navi Pasuk 4. And he sees this great fire. Pasuk 4 of page 692. A great fire. The fire is so powerful, it consumes the inner watery depths. It consumes all the great oceans. And it eats all everything. Everything. One verse of destruction, the Navi says. Now, what does the Navi... Hashem says. What does the Navi answer? 
He's shocked by this devastating destruction. Adonai Elohim, stop! Please stop! How will Yaakov survive this? He's too small. And what happened then? As David's one line prayer was to say, God repented from doing this. It will not happen. So now why is the Ram quoting this? Because what's he telling them? Pray. When Avi prayed for a devastating destruction to not happen, what happened? It didn't happen. At that point. At that point. Why is he calling him Hanavi the Navi? As opposed to Moshe Rabbeinu with red light over here. One second. Why Hanavi? Yeah. Not good enough? No. Because he wants them to get the critical import of this message. By calling him the Navi, right? Then they're going to say, this man is authoritative. He said, Navi said, that when you pray for this, it didn't happen, which he wants you to know the rest of the Pasuk, didn't happen. Stop it. Who cares? too small. And Hashem Yiham Hashem al So he's telling them, first of all, you must pray to solve this problem. It was foreseen, and therefore it's manageable. We knew it's going to happen. This was foreseen by the enemy. There's going to be a devastating destruction east and west that's going to destroy us. And yet, because we prayed, as the Navi, authoritative Navi said, it did not happen. Niham Hashem al It did not happen. God repented from doing this. So now, interesting. Who's really doing this evil? He's not laying it at the feet of the Muslim. He's saying, God's in control of the world. Prayer will, in fact, help. This is the opening line. Right? I'm sorry that you have to leave that we'll end over here because I want to finish a paragraph but I won't because you have to leave your thought is important and we'll continue over here to see exactly the input and impact of this particular line. It continues to the end of the paragraph but we'll see that next week. Baruch Hashem. Remember minyan almost? Why do we have minyan? But outside there might be somebody.